It's a bittersweet time in the year where many of the people we love and have gotten to share our Stanford experience with are graduating. So here at the Stanford Daily Podcast, we wanted to pay tribute to the lovely people in our lives who will be off doing bigger and better things in just a few weeks, but who we in our Stanford community will miss dearly. In each episode of Sweet Goodbyes, we'll interview graduating students about their Stanford journeys, lessons learned, moments remembered, and we'll also be saying goodbye today. I'll be speaking with Avi, who is a graduating senior, a transfer student from Columbia, and who has played a big role in founding the Stanford ACU Club, the Stanford Undergraduate Law Review, and has made a great impact on the community during his time here at Stanford. My name is Avi Gupta. I use he, him pronouns. I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. And I'm a senior graduating with my undergrad in political science and my co-term in CS. Some of the things I've most enjoyed being a part of at Stanford are Stanford ACLU, Stanford Undergraduate Law Review, and also the chess club. And I love playing basketball in my free time, so y'all can probably catch me at Fariaga usually. But besides that, really excited to be a part of this, and thanks for having me. Before Stanford, you went to Columbia. Could you tell us about your transfer journey and give it a little background on why you felt Stanford was the right move. So coming out of high school, I was really interested in engineering. I was in between biomedical engineering and CS. And so I went to engineering school at Columbia initially because I had gotten scholarship for research and they had really cool opportunities around engineering for humanity. And I really enjoyed my time there. I met a lot of great people, many of whom I'm really close friends with to this day. But over the course of my first semester at Columbia, I was doing a research project on surveillance capitalism. So essentially how the NSA and how tech companies may or may not be sort of surveilling us and how that plays into different theories of power and of surveillance and of technology. And also around that time, a lot of the debate around the aftermath of the 2016 election, Facebook's role in that, Cambridge Analytica, Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill, that was all playing out simultaneously. And I had this deep interest in politics, policy and law in addition to technology. And so I realized what I really wanted to do was working at the intersection of technology and policy. So how can we use law and policy to steer technology in a more socially good direction and how we can use technology to build a more effective, responsive democracy? I started to explore opportunities to pursue that at Columbia. I was looking at like minors in econ and poli-sci with my CS bachelors, but I realized that Columbia didn't really have the academic flexibility I was looking for because I was in the engineering school, so I couldn't just switch to poli-sci. And it wasn't a big institutional area of focus at Columbia at that time. And so and I remember the date because it was such a weird time or a weird week, really. March 15th, 2020, oh, I no. threw my application into the hat to transfer to Stanford. What groups have you been involved with on campus? So my first quarter at Stanford was fall 2020, oh. which was a really lovely time to meet new people. <laughs> <laughs> so I was getting to know a lot of the other transfers, but also folks in my broader community and trying to tap into different orgs like the political space and the tech space. So some of the first thing I got involved with were the Stanford Public Interest Technology mm-hmm. Lab. That's a really cool org. I was in leadership for that in my junior year. And I tried to join some existing policy orgs, but I joined a bunch of emailing lists. And one day an email came through that some folks were trying to start a chapter of the ACLU, mm-hmm. the American Civil Liberties Union here at Stanford. And they had an application for board members. The thing that they were really excited about was one of the projects they were trying to do was an undergraduate law journal. And I had worked in a science journal at Mm -hmm. Columbia. 
I had that experience of how to edit an article. And I had a good amount of leadership experience because I was in student government at Columbia and I'd also mm-hmm. worked on campaigns. This was the 2020 election cycle. <laughs> I volunteered for the Biden campaign and some Senate campaigns. And so I applied for this media chair role. And I remember interviewing with them on Zoom. I had no idea what to expect. You know, I'd never really interviewed for a club before. Like we had that at Columbia kind of informally, but this was like a board position. And I was a sophomore in my first quarter at Stanford. I ended up getting the gig and that became one of the first communities I was fortunate enough to be a part of, the founding board of the ACLU. There were definitely some ups and downs, but I was leading the undergraduate law journal that we talked about. We built that out into what is now Stanford Undergraduate Law Review. And I stayed involved with the ACLU through a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of bureaucratic processes to get the club officially registered and set up, a lot of recruiting cycles to try and grow the club. And that's honestly one of the things I'm proudest of my time at Stanford is how much we were able to build a real community in the ACLU. And I've met some of my closest friends and Mm. people I've gotten to work with through ACLU. So that's the main thing, but also like, you know, Public Interest Technology Lab, I was involved with the chess club, Mm. tried out a bunch of different stuff. I'm also involved with the ASSU in certain ways. I was on their steering committee Mm. and I've served on the Constitutional Council and those have all also been really meaningful. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the ACLU does? Yeah, I think generally our mission, you know, the National ACLU, for those who might not be familiar, is one of the oldest organizations fighting for civil liberties. Mm -hmm. So think like free speech, gender equality, racial equality, Mm -hmm. voter rights. And they've done that for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Some of the most famous cases in our history, Roe v. Wade, Brown versus Board of Education, were cases that the ACLU was involved in litigating. And they also advocate for policies at the state level as well as at the national level. Mm. So at the Stanford ACLU, our mission is to do that, but on our college campus in the surrounding community. So we've done everything from hosting a podcast, creating Stanford Undergraduate Law Review, teaching a class, going out and knocking on doors in the community with other activists, Mm. holding rallies for things like reproductive freedom and free speech on campus. It's been a really cool way to get involved with and to help build a community of people who are interested in civil liberties, interested in social justice advocacy, but aren't quite sure what issues they want to focus on or where that direction can take them. And it's also been a great way for me to find mentorship and people who are doing this kind of work older than me, peers that I could work with on different projects. So it's been really meaningful in that sense as well. Yeah, definitely a lot of people in the ACLU have a lot of different areas of expertise, a lot of like different hobbies, like you with chess. Yeah, I've been playing for a long time. I remember I first learned how to play when I was like, three or four because I was living in Utah at the time I'm from Oregon like Mm -hmm. I said but I was living in Utah with my family at the time and it was like one of those like cold winter so it was like we just had a chess set in the closet I wanted to learn how to play Mm. so my mom taught me and I I really liked it so I played in tournaments a lot throughout Mm. elementary school kind of put it on the back burner in middle school and then in high school we did a ton of stuff with not just playing chess but also organizing around it Mm. holding events related to it that culminated in like this long advocacy effort to get a national chess federation in Equatorial mm. Guinea. And that also shaped my interest in politics. Chess has been a big part of my life and I still like play recreationally. Are you still in the club? Like tangentially. So I was actually the chess club president my sophomore oh. year, which was a funny sort of coincidence yeah. like in the Zoom era. <laughs> but now I, you know, I'll make a shameless plug for it, I guess. Yeah, Sundays okay. two to four outside Tresseter. Anyone can just kind of drop by and play. And I, I certainly do that from time to time. I know you talked about this earlier, but what were some of the obstacles and most rewarding moments of building up the ACLU? with different members yeah so i think we started out with this really awesome founding board of like 10 or 15 people but one we were still in the zoom era so this all kicked off in like winter quarter 2021 and so we were trying to do these meetings on zoom 
we had to get registered as a VSO or a volunteer student organization. Mm -hmm. And that took a long time. And over time, different board members dropped off. Mm -hmm. When we came back to campus in fall 2021, more people dropped off. But we got a lot of new frosh mm -hmm. and folks coming in. So I think it was hard to get out of that cycle of, well, people leave and people stay and we're doing all this bureaucratic yeah. stuff on the side. And what are we actually providing to folks that makes them want to keep coming back each week? And so I think wrestling with that question has been simultaneously profoundly challenging and deeply rewarding, yeah. in my opinion. Because I think the conclusion that we've kind of come to at ACLU is like people at Stanford have many mm -hmm. demands in their time and things they could be doing. And so we thought what would help people feel like it was worth their time was one, actually knowing and enjoying and being friends with the people they're working yeah. alongside, and two, actually doing tangible mm -hmm. things. Like not just, you know, having folks come in and talk at you or just discussing issues, even though that's all very important, but also doing things like teaching a class, producing a podcast, creating an organizing initiative mm -hmm. around free speech, reproductive freedom, mental health or disability justice, any number of things. And so I think watching that community grow mm -hmm. from being like five people on a Zoom to at some meetings upwards of 30, 40, mm -hmm. 50 people to the point where we can't fit in one room at the Haas Center has been really inspiring. Don't get me wrong, it's been stressful at times too, but an aspect of my own personal journey has been learning how to grow into that role mm -hmm. as a leader within that effort. I've gotten to serve as co-president for the past year plus-ish, and that's been a nice culmination of all the efforts we put into this club at Stanford. I didn't know that the ACLU was a new club. It's just been really cool to find out that like it's what at its five four year mark? Oh not even yeah. It's crazy when you put it in those terms because yeah. I've been at Stanford I guess I'm finishing my third year here in my last year mm -hmm. of college and ACLU's lifespan has kind of been my time at Stanford. Yeah. It's crazy how much it's changed over the course of that experience too. I think Hopefully be a club that people see as a, a place on campus where they can find a home for their interests, mm -hmm. develop their views, engage in like meaningful activities beyond just the classroom. One of the things I've been kind of struck by during mm -hmm. my time at Stanford is just the sheer gravity of tech and engineering yeah. and science at this school. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome and super valuable. But I also think there's a place here for, at Stanford for people who aren't mm -hmm. necessarily interested in just that who are interested in thinking about how these fundamental forces are reshaping our society and how we can craft a better society through other means than just technical innovation. And my hope is that ACLU, along with a lot of the other awesome clubs in this space, mm -hmm. get to be part of that experience for future students and students who are here now. And yeah, Nicole Domingo is my co-president now. Yeah. She'll be sticking around next year. She's class of 24 has been a huge part of ACLU. She was the only mm. freshman in our founding board. I was one of the only sophomores. But I'm really proud and really confident mm -hmm. that as I sort of transition out of here, that the club's in like a good place. It might be kind of very similarly, but you talked about the Stanford undergrad law review. Yeah. And how is that process of trying to build that up? I mean, yeah, it's interesting because SULR is sort of different from ACLU because mm. it's not like a club that meets every week. It's a thing people can be a part of on the mm. side. Like they can serve as an editor or a staff member. And when they're needed to edit an article or help with some staff tasks, they'll do it. It's like a similar set of challenges in terms of actually just starting something. Yeah. But SULR it was also really about getting the name out there and getting people to submit pieces. Mm. And I remember I was so happy when I was like, or I was like so nervous when I was watching the submissions come in for the first edition. Mm. Cause it's like, if no one submits articles, we can't <laughs> do anything. Yeah. And I was just so, so happy that people submitted and they were 
trusting of us mm-hmm. enough to give us something yeah. they've put a lot of effort and thought and time into mm-hmm. and trust us to treat that work with respect and help them edit it into an even better piece. Um, so that's been really meaningful because I think it's also a place for people mm-hmm. to discuss issues that are important to them. It's a place for people who are pursuing careers in that line to get early experience with it. Mm-hmm. And it's a place for folks to have conversations about issues that we don't always get to discuss on campus. Like we've hosted articles from everything about Native American tribal law mm-hmm. to in vitro gametogenesis, which would have implications for how same-sex couples, for example, could have biological mm-hmm. children, yeah. which is all really interesting. And I think it's just been really enjoyable to read and learn from these pieces more so. Yeah. Like, I think we're contributing a little bit, but really it's the, the brilliance of these authors, not just from Stanford, but also we've had authors from Berkeley, mm-hmm. for example, who are enriching, you know, as you all are. And a fun fact that a lot of our listeners might not know is that Avi was on Jeopardy twice. Could you tell us more about getting into Jeopardy, why you do it, some background? Yeah, sure. I first participated in Jeopardy in the 2019 teen tournament. Mm. That was the last Jeopardy teen tournament with Alex Trebek as the host mm. before he passed away. Yeah. And I most recently participated in 2023, this year, in this high school reunion tournament. They brought some folks back from previous teen tournaments, now that we're all in college slash out of college. It definitely wasn't something that I ever thought I would do in my life. I So for context, my family's from India. My grandma lived in India while she was still with us. And she would come visit in the summers when I was a kid. And we would watch, you know, she didn't really like American TV. No. She liked like her Indian TV. But the shows she would watch were American game shows. The Price is Right, Wheel of Fortune, and Jeopardy. But her yeah. favorite was Jeopardy. Yeah. So I would sit and watch with her sometimes. And maybe I'd get some questions right, but mostly I'd just sit and listen. Mm-hmm. And I was always a really curious kid. I liked reading. I liked learning about stuff. I liked mm-hmm. asking questions. So when I was in high school, my junior year of high school, I had to like sign up for the Jeopardy mailing list because there was some game you could play online where you could play some clues mm-hmm. that they didn't get to show on the TV. And so I guess I'd signed up at some point. And I got an email saying, like, if you know a teen, you should forward an audition for the teen tournament. And I was like, yeah, whatever, sure. Because <laughs> it, was it wasn't even an audition. It's like a 15-minute online test. Mm-hmm. And so I had never done Quiz Bowl or Knowledge Bowl or any academic competition mm-hmm. besides, like, Science Bowl. So I remember I took the test in the middle of a mock trial scrimmage at a oh. courthouse on the bench outside in the hallway. And I was just like on my laptop, just take yeah. the test and forgot about it. This was March 2018. And June 2018, I get a call from our home phone saying, we'd like to invite you to an audition in San Francisco for oh, Jeopardy. Right. And I was in Portland at the time. So we thought it was a scam, but it wasn't as it turns out. So I go to SF with my dad for like a day trip. I go there and these kids are studying trivia books because they're going to have us take an in-person test. That's part of it. But we take the test and they, you know, collect our tests, the producers do, and they go outside to, like, grade them, I guess. But the second part of the audition was, like, a mock gameplay. Uh, so they had you, like, get up in front and, like, have the buzzer and mm-hmm. play as if you were actually on the show because they wanted to get a gauge of your personality. And I was like, well, I'm going to just have fun with this because I don't think yeah. I'm going to get on this show. But coincidentally, the next month in August, I was at the same courthouse where I'd taken the test oh. because I was watching a trial that like my mm-hmm. mom trial coach was doing. And when I got my phone back after security and I had, like three missed calls from my parents, and I called oh. back and my parents were both there on the speakerphone. And my mom was like, oh, um, Avi, they called. You're going to be on Jeopardy. And my dad was like, no, no, no. She's just trying to give you an early birthday present. And she's like, no, 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 it's for real. And so I listened mm-hmm. to the voicemail yeah. and I was like, OK, well, this is happening. And they were going to tape it in December 2018. My friends helped me study in school. Some of my teachers were nice enough to let me study during class. And we taped the show in December 2018. It aired in June 2019. I ended up winning the tournament, which was really surprising. 
Was it this recent one or the last one that you won with the Philippines or? Oh yeah, so I won with the Philippines in my quarterfinal game in the recent tournament. Mm -hmm. so for context, I won the tournament back in high school and then they brought that tournament as well as the 2018 team tournament yeah. back for a reunion. And it was a lot of fun. I definitely wasn't as prepared for the high school reunion tournament. Mm -hmm. I had been in school for four years. Yeah. I hadn't been doing anything with yeah. trivia. I was just kind of there for fun and ended up making it to the semifinals, which mm -hmm. is better than I thought I would do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Do you plan on making a third appearance? That's up to them, but you never know. A lot of fun stuff has come out of it, so I'm really grateful for it. We'll, we'll petition for you to be on there <laughs> a third time. Yeah, if the producers yeah. are listening to this podcast, literally, I'm down, literally. I'll come back. Get yeah. this to the producers. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what are the experiences that you treasure the most from your undergrad career? Just memories that you're really fond of. I think as my time at Stanford comes to a close, mm. I've been reflecting a lot on what made this place meaningful for me. Mm. I think the real value of a place like Stanford isn't just, for example, if you're a CS major, it's not just like learning how to code. It's about the people you're surrounded by, not just faculty, but also your peers. Mm. I'm talking about like the conversations that you have at this school, mm. for me at least, have changed the way I think about the world. Mm just from the people I've been around and who I've treasured. My sophomore year, I was on campus with a bunch of other transfers. But we take these long walks around campus mm. and explore the place that we hadn't gotten to be at before yeah. and talk about everything. It's like, that's continued throughout my time at Stanford. It's all the pickup basketball games, yeah. Faryaga and outside. <laughs> and also just the sense that the best is yet to come for us. Mm. Everyone here is committed to making an impact in the world. And it's really inspiring to be around those folks every day. Mm. Learned a lot more from just the people I've been around in Stanford than I think like anything I could have possibly contributed. Like I just have friends with so many interesting backgrounds and life stories. And I think growing up, I wasn't necessarily exposed to a lot of the perspectives yeah. and folks I've gotten to not just get to know here, but count among some of my closest friends. Mm -hmm. And I'm just profoundly grateful for that. Yeah. And you were talking about transitions earlier from Columbia to Stanford and now to Yale Law School. What has been the biggest lesson that you learned from past transitions and now transitioning out to graduate school? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I don't know if I have any super great insight on this, especially on the law school aspect yeah, of it because yeah, yeah. I haven't done it yet. But <laughs> I do think one of the things I'm most grateful for and that I did was mm -hmm. I made a real effort to get to know people. Mm -hmm. And that was not always the easiest thing in the world. It was like a lot of like weird Zoom chats <laughs> and like outdoor socially distanced coffee yeah. things. But everyone at Stanford was really welcoming mm -hmm. to me and sort of incorporated me into their communities and their friend group, even though I wasn't around for the first stage mm -hmm. of like my class's Stanford journey. So I think becoming a part of things, or I guess more so in my case, starting my own thing yeah. with some other folks with common interests and also just putting myself out there more socially has really enriched my experience. And I'm just really honored to have been a part of like, the community here. Really grateful to everyone who welcomed me and the other mm -hmm. transfers. In. And also, weirdly enough, I think COVID just played a strange role in that transition because mm -hmm. it wasn't like in a normal year, I'm going from like New York City to Palo Alto. Yeah. It was more like I'm going from Columbia.Zoom.us to Stanford.Zoom.us. <laughs> And then I'm going to like covid -y Stanford where there's not that yeah. many people here. Then I'm going to slightly less COVID Stanford with slightly more people here. Then I'm going to like more full in-person Stanford mm -hmm. in fall 2021. And so I think I'm kind of grateful for how gradual that transition ended up being. Mm -hmm. Because it gave me time to like build up this um, web of people, this community. Mm -hmm. 
that I could really count on as friends and learn from. For anybody tuning into the podcast, could you share some words of wisdom that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best advice I ever got was actually from my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was like, look, if one out of every 10 things you try works, that's not a bad ratio. That's a Mm -hmm. good ratio. That's Mm -hmm. success. Like, there's been a lot of things that haven't worked out Mm -hmm. for me as is for everyone at Stanford. It's yeah. just like, you're going to fail a lot, you know, like applying to internships, yeah. trying to get into clubs, Gosh. any, anything. Yeah. Right. So I would say that's part of it, you know, to the extent that you're comfortable really trying to get to know people mm-hmm. who are maybe outside of like your own traditional circles or friend groups. I think I've learned some of the most from those types of interactions. Mm-hmm. And all. I think one thing that's really changed about me during college, is I'm way more willing to say yes to stuff, yeah. like just randomly yeah. going to the beach or like, randomly going to this conference like going to this club meeting yeah that i just don't know anything about stuff like that i think is really valuable and i yeah. think there's enough more than enough to do at this school to fill 10 college experiences yeah much less one and so learning how to say no to things has been hard but you're going to get less out of it if you're trying to do too much and not really yeah. doing it i think yeah. i've always gotten more out of things where i've like showed up consistently and put in the effort mm. rather than just being like half involved in a bunch of different stuff but I will say frosh year, especially or late sophomore year, mm-hmm. it's good to explore a bunch of different clubs yeah. and just go to events, like talk to the speakers, ask questions. Mm-hmm. People are really willing to talk to you when you're a student. Mm-hmm. And like, look, I'm gonna be honest, there's so many like dumb questions I've asked people, but they're happy to answer them because they're like a student and they want to help someone who's trying to learn. That's not going to be the case when we're out of here and we're like actual adults, you know, but it's a unique opportunity to just, this is the only time in our lives when our only job is to learn That's fundamentally. And yeah. I think that's really special. Mm-hmm. Kind of as the last question, who have you found really good community with that as you transition out into graduate school, you're gonna really going to miss them? Yeah. I think as a general thing, mm-hmm. this question, it feels like not necessarily that many people in my class are like leaving, leaving. Yeah. Because so many people are co-terming yeah. or they're moving, but they're staying in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so I'm moving to the East Coast, and yeah. that's going to be tough because I'm going to miss a lot of people who are mm-hmm. like still here, either working in the area mm-hmm. or they're still in school. Obviously, the ACLU homie, people I've met through classes, mm-hmm. just everyone with whom I've been able to share this experience with, yeah. you know, yeah. like just get meals with, get coffee with, go places, do things, make a lot of mistakes with. Mm-hmm. I'm going to miss that. I'm going to definitely try and come back, but... Yeah. And it's it's funny that we're recording this, like, exactly a month before graduation. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I got one month of this experience left with these people mm-hmm. who I treasure so much. But if there's anything transferring has taught me, mm-hmm. it's that I, you know, you can keep in touch with people. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I know, like, Stanford people are always so busy doing everything. Well, look, I'm in senior spring. But yeah, no, thank you for yeah, having yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. It's been a lot of fun. Congrats on your law. Congrats on graduating soon. Thanks to Stephanie. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. That's it for Sweet Goodbyes. Thank you for listening and more goodbyes to come. This episode was produced by Stephanie Mendoza Rodriguez. For more podcasts by the Stanford Daily, visit stanforddaily.com slash category slash podcasts.